Hey friends, M. Faring here. I'm so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope you are able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay, friends, let's begin. Hello there, and welcome to the Open Our Bibles Together podcast. I am so happy you're here and joining me today as we continue our studies in the book of Genesis. If you recall, we ended our last study time together with an overview of Joseph's storyline to come from now until the end of the book. Many, many, many twists and turns for sure. And so if you haven't already heard, you may want to go back to the end of episode 35 and take a listen. I feel this framework is important for helping us keep this story straight, so to speak, as it is very action-packed and dramatic in nature from start to finish. And I promise you, I am not even exaggerating one bit when I say that, my friends. Oh my, Joseph. (laughs) On that note, how about we officially begin Joseph's story in Genesis chapter 37 from the New Living Translation, which reads, So Jacob settled again in the land of Canaan, where his father had lived as a foreigner. This is the account of Jacob and his family. When Joseph was 17 years old, he had often tended his father's flocks. He worked for his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Bilhah and Zilpha. But Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. But his brothers hated Joseph because his father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word to him. One night, Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers about it, they hated him more than ever. Listen to this dream, he said. We were out in a field tying up bundles of grain. Suddenly my bundle stood up, and your bundles all gathered round and bowed low before mine. His brothers responded, So you think you will be our king, do you? Do you actually think you will reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the ways he talked about them. Soon Joseph had another dream, and again he told his brothers about it. Listen, I've had another dream, he said. The sun, moon, and eleven stars bowed low before me. This time he told the dream to his father as well as to his brothers. But his father scolded him. What kind of dream is that, he asked. Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? But while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered what the dreams meant. Soon after this, Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flocks at Shechem. When they had been gone for some time, Jacob said to Joseph, Your brothers are pasturing the sheep at Shechem. Get ready, and I will send you to them. I'm ready to go, Joseph replied. Go and see how your brothers and the flocks are getting along, Jacob said. Then come back and bring me a report. So Jacob sent him on his way, and Joseph traveled to Shechem from their home in the valley of Hebron. When he arrived there, a man from the area noticed him wandering around the countryside. What are you looking for? he asked. I'm looking for my brothers, Joseph replied. Do you know where they are pasturing their sheep? Yes, the man told him. They have moved on from here, but I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph followed his brothers to Dothan and found them there. When Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. As he approached, they made plans to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. We can tell our father a wild animal has eaten him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard of their scheme, he came to Joseph's rescue. Let's not kill him, he said. Why should we shed any blood? Let's just throw him into this empty cistern here in the wilderness. Then he'll die without our laying a hand on him. 
Reuben was secretly planning to rescue Joseph and return him to his father. So when Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off the beautiful robe he was wearing. Then they grabbed him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Then, just as they were sitting down to eat, they looked up and saw a caravan of camels in the distance coming toward them. It was a group of Ishmaelite traders taking a load of gum, balm, and aromatic resin from Gilead down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain by killing our brother? We'd have to cover up the crime. Instead of hurting him, let's sell him to these Ishmaelite traders. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. So when the Ishmaelites, who were Midianite traders, came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him to them for twenty pieces of silver. And the traders took him to Egypt. Some time later, Reuben returned to get Joseph out of the cistern. When he discovered that Joseph was missing, he tore his clothes in grief. Then he went back to his brothers and lamented, The boy is gone. What will I do now? Then the brothers killed a young goat and dipped Joseph's robe in it. Then they sent the beautiful robe to their father with this message. Look at what we found. Doesn't this robe belong to your son? Their father recognized it immediately. Yes, he said. It's my son's robe. A wild animal must have eaten him. Joseph has clearly been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes and dressed himself in burlap. He mourned deeply for his son for a long time. His family tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. I will go to my grave mourning for my son, he would say. And then he would weep. Meanwhile, the Midianite traders arrived in Egypt, where they sold Joseph to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Potiphar was the captain of the palace guard. Can you even imagine? Oh, friends. Before we take a deeper dive into what is happening here as Joseph is sold into slavery by his own brothers, we first need to take a closer look at that coat and those dreams. The Taking Sibling Rivalry to New Heights devotional from First Five's Genesis study reads, Chapter 37 opens with Jacob gifting his son Joseph a coat. But not just an ordinary coat, a beautiful multicolored coat similar to that worn by kings. Why Joseph and not another son? Because Joseph's favorite wife, Rachel, gave birth to him after years of barrenness. Jacob saw Joseph as a blessing, gifted with unique ability to interpret dreams, and chosen by God to accomplish great things. This coat became a symbol of Jacob's favoritism and fed the already deep-seated resentment Joseph's older brothers harbored against him. Joseph fueled this fire by foolishly sharing his dreams, which prophesied he would one day rule over his brothers. Their jealousy and resentment morphed into rage. They conspired to kill him, stripped him of his beautiful coat, and threw him into a pit. But before they killed Joseph, some slave traders came by. So his brothers pulled him up out of the pit and sold him into slavery. We can only imagine the anguish and anger Joseph felt. But God had his hand upon Joseph. God never took his watchful eye off him. The slave traders sold him to an officer in the Pharaoh's army. While there, Joseph grew in favor, stature, and wealth. God used Joseph's brother's jealousy and wickedness to get Joseph to where he needed him, Egypt. Though he suffered many trials, God raised Joseph to a position of authority to fulfill those early God-given dreams that he would one day be in a position of great authority. Sometimes God allows us to walk through difficult circumstances to accomplish his greater plans for our lives and his kingdom purposes. Oh, that last part. Let me say it again. Sometimes God allows us to walk through difficult circumstances to accomplish his greater plans for our lives and his kingdom purposes. Wow, so true, but so hard to live through, right? Listen to these thoughts on Jacob's beloved son, Joseph, as compared to Jesus in the Promised One book. Joseph was the first of many deliverers God sent who would picture and point to the greater deliverer God would send in his own son. 
Joseph's story pictured for all the generations of the people of God how this Savior's Son would accomplish His saving work, suffering before glory, rejection before acceptance, humiliation leading to exaltation, descending into the lowest pit before being raised to the highest pinnacle. When Jesus opened the minds of the disciples to understand the Scriptures, perhaps He pointed to Jesus and said something like, Remember how Joseph was rejected by the sons of Jacob? So was I. Remember how Joseph's brothers wouldn't listen to what he said and conspired to kill him? So did my Jewish brothers refuse to listen to me and conspired to kill me. Remember how Joseph left his home of privilege with his father who loved him and became a slave in Egypt. That's what happened to me when I left my father's home in heaven and came to this world, taking the form of a servant. Remember how Joseph was eventually exalted to the king's right hand and his brothers came and bowed down before him. That's what is ahead for me. Shortly I will ascend to my Father's right hand, and the day will come when every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that I am Lord. Joseph's life was a preview of the saving work of God that would ultimately be accomplished in Jesus Christ. And if we want to see how God will accomplish the salvation of His people, we will explore Joseph's story not primarily in learning from Joseph's example, but so that we might see the greater Savior to whom Joseph points. Beloved Son By the time Joseph arrived in Jacob's family, there was already a house full of siblings. From the very beginning of his story, we are told that Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was a son of his old age. Genesis chapter 37, verse 3. The intensity of the love Jacob had for his son Joseph was matched only by the intensity of the hatred Joseph's brothers had for him. Genesis 37, 4 says, When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Can't you just feel the tension? The antagonism of Joseph's brothers toward this favored son was only exacerbated when Joseph told them about his dreams. Understandably, Joseph's brothers were offended by the suggestion that God had given him a vision of the future in which they would one day bow down to him. They already resented him for being their father's clear favorite, and this just added more logs to that fire. In a culture in which elders were reverenced by the younger, Jacob was understandably taken aback too. Yet he was not quick to condemn his young son's dream. He must have thought back to the night when God clearly spoke to him through a dream in which he saw angels ascending and descending on a ladder that went up into heaven. Jacob knew the power of a dream from God. Jacob should have also remembered the pain inflicted upon him by a father who obviously favored his brother Esau and had been determined not to inflict the pain of parental favoritism on his own sons. But evidently he didn't. And when his oldest son Reuben slept with Jacob's concubine Bilhah, it gave Jacob an excuse to give the status of the firstborn to another son, his favorite son, Joseph. That was the significance of the colorful robe he gave to Joseph. This was not a working man's garment, but the royal robe of one who would one day rule as head of the family. Sometimes we grow up hearing a sanitized, kid-friendly version of this story. We can be unmoved by the horror and harshness of what happened to Joseph if we have. But now that we are grown-ups, let's allow ourselves to see it for what it is. When we read that his brothers stripped his robe from him, this is the same word that will be used for skinning an animal. This was a violent attack. The term for throwing him into the dry cistern is used for discarding a dead body. Joseph lay bruised and bleeding on the rocky floor of a dried-out cistern where his brothers intended to let him starve to death, and he begged his brothers to spare his life. But they were callous enough to sit down to supper and simply ignore his agonized cries. While their original plan was to let him die, one brother got the idea of making a little money on the deal, so they ended up selling Joseph off as a slave. Perhaps Joseph spent his first weeks and months in Egypt looking for his father to show up and rescue him. 
He didn't know his father thought he was dead. There had to be long nights sobbing in the darkness, longing for his own bed, his own home, his own people. Yet somehow, in the painful darkness of the pit, in the confines of the slave quarters, and later in prison, Joseph not only knew that God was with him, but also was confident in God's plan to use him. That confidence gave him peace as he waited for God to work out his plan, even as that plan brought him pain. Joseph held on to the revelation from God of his future exaltation. His memory of this vivid dream and his confidence that it was a vision from God of the future God would bring about enabled him to endure the violent attack of his brothers, the humiliation of standing naked before heathen slave traders, being carried off to Egypt, and so much more. It reminds me of what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, Hebrews 12.2. Jesus, too, was confident in the plan of God to use him to save his brothers who hated him. He, too, was stripped of his clothing and descended into the pit of death. He, too, cried out with tears to him who was able to save him from death, Hebrews 5.7, and was not saved. His confidence in what was ahead when he would be exalted in heaven at the right hand of God, surrounded by a great multitude of his brothers, empowered Jesus to endure the cross. One day Joseph lived in the comfortable home of his father, where he enjoyed the privileges of being the chosen heir, and the next he was targeted, attacked, and humiliated, ending up as a common slave in a foreign country. What a picture this provides to us of the humiliation of God's beloved son Jesus, who was not an unwilling victim like Joseph, but willingly offered himself up to be treated in this way. Joseph's emergence from the pit of death and eventual ascension to the right hand of Pharaoh also provides us a picture of the resurrection and glorification of God's beloved son, Jesus. Just as Jacob's sons one day bowed before Joseph, as God had told him in his dream, so the day is coming when all will bow before Jacob's greater son, Jesus. So before we move on, I wanted to share a few random thoughts as pulled straight from my notes about things I noticed or that came to my mind while I was studying in Genesis chapter 37. 1. The damage caused by parents choosing favorites. Just as Isaac and Rebekah did with Jacob and Esau, here we see Jacob doing the same thing with Joseph and the tension that it causes in a family. Maybe you too have experienced the heartbreak of this, and I'm so sorry, friends, if you have. Number 2. Spoiler alert. Joseph's dreams are actually foreshadowing, but it will be many, many years and many, many chapters before we see the fulfillment of these dreams for our dreamer, Joseph. Number three, Joseph is sent to the pasture where his brothers were with their father's flock to check on them, the same Shechem of Dinah's trauma. Imagine those tensions of the brothers being in that area after the massacre of all the men. What even remained after the plunder? Well, besides the memories of what they had done. Sometimes the backstory of the seemingly simple words found in Scripture hold of a lot of emotion and tension, don't they? Goodness. 4. Judah was the one who recommended that they choose to sell Joseph. Yes, the same Judah who was in the lineage of Jesus, whose life we will very soon be closely looking at, and it's safe to say from all that is to come that he did not come out of the situation with what he and his brothers did to Joseph and his father's inconsolable grief unscathed. More on that very soon. Number five, Reuben coming to Joseph's rescue, but it didn't work out, is very different than him sleeping with Jacob's concubine, Bilhah. Just another important reminder that God only has sinners to work with, and that includes each of us, am I right, my friends? Number six, this trip to Egypt meant that Joseph traveled a 30-day journey through the desert, chained and on foot. Can you even imagine the thoughts going through his mind? Number seven, doesn't this robe belong to your son? 
The brothers did not even reference Joseph as their brother when they spoke to their father about him, as part of their elaborate plan to cover up selling him. Number eight. In covering up their actions, Jacob's sons used deception to convince their father into thinking that Joseph was dead. How heartbreaking to realize a deceiver is once again being deceived as we remember that Jacob himself had deceived many, including his own father. Just as Jacob in exile with his uncle Laban foreshadowed the eventual exile of the Israelite nation, there's plenty of foreshadowing as well with Joseph being taken to Egypt in slavery and the eventual slavery of the Israelites. So many threads and so many pieces of the puzzle to fit together that our God of the universe so lovingly put into place as a part of his unfolding plan in his story here on earth. And he's still doing the same today, friends. Wow. Just wow. Let's go back to that ripped off robe for a moment, shall we? This seems to serve as a reminder of what jealousy unattended can become, a hatred and a willingness to murder even. Oh my. Also, can we just come right out and admit it is plain old shocking to read that 10 men were actually willing to kill their younger brother over a robe and a few shared dreams. Yikes. However, before we let ourselves off the hook here, let's hear from the Joseph is sold into slavery devotional in She Reads Truth's Genesis study about what we see happening here. Envy is threaded through the Bible, a through line of sin from Cain and Abel, Rachel and Leah, Saul and David, the Pharisees who watched Jesus draw crowds to himself, and more. In history, art, and literature, examples are rampant. In Shakespeare's Othello, Iago cautions Othello about such envy. Oh, beware, my lord, of jealousy. It is a green-eyed monster which doth mock the meat it feeds on. Joseph is a victim of his brother's jealousy, which robs him of his family, his home, his dignity, and almost his life. His brothers strip him of his robe and would have killed him, but sold him to a band of traitors instead. It was perhaps the equivalent of death in their eyes. They expected to never see him again and delivered the news of his death to their father, Jacob. As modern readers, we know how the story goes. Joseph trusts the Lord and the Lord protects him. He rises to power in Egypt and eventually saves his family from famine and forgives his brothers. But the moment we read about today is Genesis 37, and it doesn't have any of that goodness only pain. And by not reading ahead, we can force ourselves to sit in the devastation wrecked by Joseph's brothers. Jacob mourned the loss of his son and cannot be comforted. Joseph is sold again, this time to an Egyptian official. No longer in control, Joseph has lost all agency at the hands of his jealous brothers. This is that same green-eyed monster, and throughout scripture we are warned against its fallout. Proverbs 14.30 cautions that a tranquil heart is life to the body, but jealousy is rottenness to the bones. Ecclesiastes 4.4 tells us that all labor and all skillful work is due to one's person's jealousy of another. This, too, is futile and a pursuit of the wind. And James 3.16 advises that where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. Scripture certainly doesn't hold back about the consequences of jealousy, and neither should we. As I read about Joseph's story, I'm aware that I should let it read me. Where is my jealousy hurting people that I love? Where is it corroding my heart and sowing disorder? Where is it disordering my priorities away from Christ and toward my own selfish gain? These are important questions to ask because jealousy isn't something to be taken lightly. My prayer is that I never will. Ouch and more ouch, am I right? Not only is it uncomfortable to set in the reality that although we know the story of Joseph ties up in a fairly nice bow at the end, Genesis 37 doesn't have any clue of that. Only devastating pain and heartache. 
By not reading ahead, we can allow the weight of this story to truly settle in our hearts and minds. And then, with the heaviness of heart at the extreme lengths and the unbelievable path that jealousy led Joseph's brothers down, we should then rip the band-aid off, so to speak, and let Joseph's story read you, read me. We not only should, but also must ask ourselves the important questions to recognize where jealousy is lurking in our own lives. Please convict us, Father God. Amen and amen. Okay, let's move on from here by reading chapter 38 in the book of Genesis. The New Living Translation begins. About this time, Judah left home and moved to Adullam, where he stayed with a man named Hira. There he saw a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua, and he married her. When he slept with her, she became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and he named the boy Ur. Then she became pregnant again and gave birth to another son, and she named him Onan. And when she gave birth to a third son, she named him Shelah. At the time of Shelah's birth, they were living at Kazeb. In the course of time, Judah arranged his firstborn son Ur to marry a young woman named Tamar. But Ur was a wicked man in the Lord's sight, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Ur's brother Onan, Go and marry Tamar, as our law requires, of the brother of a man who has died. You must produce an heir for your brother. But Onan was not willing to have a child who would not be his own heir. So whenever he had intercourse with his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground. This prevented her from having a child who belonged to his brother. But the Lord considered it evil for Onan to deny the child to a dead brother. So the Lord took Onan's life too. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Go back to your parents' home and remain a widow until my son Shelah is old enough to marry you. But Judah didn't really intend to do this because he was afraid Shelah would die too, like his other two brothers. So Tamar went back to live in her father's home. Some years later, Judah's wife died. After the time of mourning was over, Judah and his friend Hira the Adamite went with him to Timnah to supervise the shearing of his sheep. Someone told Tamar, Look, your father-in-law is going to Timnah to shear his sheep. Tamar was aware that Shelah had grown up, but no arrangements had been made for her to come and marry him. So she changed out of her widow's clothing and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. Then she sat beside the road at the entrance to the village of Anyam, in which was on the road to Timnah. Judah noticed her and thought she was a prostitute since she had covered her face. So he stopped and propositioned her. Let me have sex with you, he said, not realizing that she was his own daughter-in-law. How much will you pay me? Tamar asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, Judah promised. But what will you give me to guarantee that you will send the goat, she asked. What kind of guarantee do you want, he replied. She answered, leave me your identification seal in its cord and walking stick that you are carrying. So Judah gave them to her. He then had intercourse with her and she became pregnant. Afterwards, she went back home, took off her veil and put on her widow's clothing as usual. Later, Judah asked his friend Hira the Adullamite to take the young goat to the woman and to pick up the things he had given her as his guarantee. But Hira couldn't find her. So he asked the men who lived there, where can we find the shrine prostitute who was sitting beside the road at the entrance to Anium? We'd never had a shrine prostitute here, they replied. So Hira returned to Judah and told him, I couldn't find her anywhere, and the men of the village claimed they never had a shrine prostitute there. Then let her keep the things I gave her, Judah said. I sent the young goat as we agreed, but you couldn't find her. We'd be the laughingstock of the village if we went back again to look for her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has acted like a prostitute. And now, because of this, she's pregnant. Bring her out and let her be burned, Judah demanded. But as they were taking her out to kill her, she sent this message to her father-in-law. The man who owns these things made me pregnant. Look closely. Whose seal and cord and walking stick are these? Judah recognized them immediately and said, 
She is more righteous than I am, because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son, Sheila, and you'd have never slept with Tamar again. When the time came for Tamar to give birth, it was discovered that she was carrying twins. While she was in labor, one of the babies reached out his hand. The midwife grabbed it and tied a scarlet string around the child's wrist, announcing, This one came out first. But then he pulled his hand back, and out came his brother. What? the midwife exclaimed. How did you break out first? And so he was named Perez, and the baby with the scarlet string on his wrist was born, and he was named Zara. Okay, so can I first off just jump in here to say that while we may or may not recall both Judah and Tamar's names listed in the lineage of Jesus in the book of Matthew, or have heard the reference to Jesus as the Lion of Judah, what we can see from this very disturbing story found in the scripture is that once again, God is in the business of using sinful, flawed people to fulfill his plan and his purposes here on earth. I don't know about you, but I know I sure do take comfort and am even encouraged by that truth because, well, that means there's hope for me as well. (laughs) Maybe that gives you the same hope, my friend. It should. And moving back to what we just read, though, phew, where do I even begin? I feel like I have said that often in the book of Genesis, but I think I feel this way because I have. Goodness gracious. Reading the Bible over and over again for myself has definitely provided many opportunities to recognize how whitewashed, quote unquote, some of these stories have been taught to me, cleaned up, so to speak. These are real people going through really hard situations, but we also see how even in the dark stories of the Bible, God is working through brokenness to bring us rescue and healing. Phew. So back to Judah and his sons and Tamar. Let's begin with what we see happening in the beginning of this chapter with these thoughts from Running from Sin in First Five's Genesis study. Verse 1 reads, At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. Judah was the fourth son of Jacob. It is the time in Judah's life when he left home after he and his brothers sold his younger brother Joseph to slave traders from Egypt. It is a time right after he and his brothers took Joseph's colorful coat covered in animal's blood to Jacob and lied about his death. It was the time Judah ran from sin. Life on the run should never be our response to sin. We can only guess how different Judah's life would have been if he had just confessed his sin and asked his father for forgiveness. Reading the remainder of Genesis 38, we see Judah's response sent him into a tailwind of destruction. Judah fled to Adullam, married Shua, and started a family. Judah's first son, Ur, was married to Tamar. But Ur was evil, and the Lord took his life before producing an heir. At the time, leveret marriage was a common practice. This practice required a brother to marry the deceased wife so an heir could be produced. So Judah gave his second son, Onan, to Tamar in marriage. But Onan was selfish, and he didn't want his children to belong to his deceased brother. So Onan took matters into his own hands to prevent that. The Lord considered this evil and took his life. Judah's third son, Shelah, but he did not want to offer him to Tamar for fear that he too would die. Instead, he sent Tamar back to her parents with a false promise of a marriage to Shelah when he got older. When Tamar learned of Judah's deception, she devised a scheme of her own. She covered her face and waited for Judah to come to town. He assumed that she was a prostitute and slept with her. Out of this union came twin boys, Perez and Zara. The birth of these boys provided our hope for eternity. Our hope for eternity came in the person of Jesus, whose lineage is traced through Perez and Judah. Even though running from our sin is never the right response, we often do. Rather than running from God in our sin, let's be challenged to run to Him with sin. He is faithful and just to forgive and restore our brokenness. 
Continuing on, in the She Reads Truth Genesis reading plan, in a section titled Judah and Tamar, it reads, Genesis 38 breaks into the Joseph narrative with a bold, complicated, very broken story. Joseph is sold into slavery, and the very next verse we read is about his brother Judah. Judah was one of Leah's sons, and Leah, the wife that Jacob didn't love. Judah was also the patriarch of the lineage of King David and Jesus. So this story, and Judah's legacy, isn't as much an interjection as an interlude that gives us a glimpse of God's grace and the amazing ways His promises were fulfilled despite all sorts of human interference. Some cultural background helps this story, but it's a rather tangled web of relationships. Leverite marriage was a practice in the ancient Near East that was later codified in Deuteronomy 25 as part of the Mosaic Law. Basically, it meant that if a man died before he had a child, his brother had to marry his wife, and their first child would carry on the first dad brother's name and place in the lineage. Judah had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Ur married a woman named Tamar, and Ur was so evil that he died. Onan married Tamar, but he didn't want to preserve his brother's place in the lineage, and so he did not impregnate Tamar and was killed for that sin. Judah had seen both of his sons die after marrying Tamar, so he hid Shelah away and kept him from Tamar. Tamar, the widow who had the right to bear Judah's eldest son's child and continue the family line, responded. She dressed as a prostitute, tempted Judah, and conceived a child with him without him knowing who she was. Later, when Judah found out she was pregnant, he threatened to kill her for adultery against Shelah, whom she was technically betrothed to. When she revealed that Judah was in fact the father, he then admitted that he had wronged her. Tamar had twin sons, Perez and Zerah, and Perez continued the family line and his descendants included King David and Jesus. That is a lot of background to unpack a story that is, at its root, a story of God's faithfulness to a family. God had made a promise to Abraham. He made a promise to Isaac and to Jacob. And at so many turns, the promise appears threatened by someone's sin. Judah almost destroyed what he should never have had in the first place the blessing of the line of Christ. But the author of this very complicated story is the ultimate author of the story, the story where God wins, where His promises all come true, and where we are given the free gift of grace purchased on the cross by Jesus, the Son of God, who came to the earth as a baby in the line of Judah. God can and does redeem the hardest, most impossible, most complicated stories. What a gift it is to be His. Oh, my friends, Redemption of the hardest, most impossible, most complicated stories. What a gift to be His, to be God's, indeed a gift. Before we end our time studying the story of Tamar and Judah, let's take a few extra moments to put some flesh on it, so to speak. You may or may not know already how much I love to consider the thoughts, feelings, and emotions of the characters we come across in our Bible studies. To once again remind ourselves that these are real people, real lives, real struggles, and real chaos. Real, my friends, all of it. So with that in mind, let's read from Tamar's story titled Unveiled in the Lineage of Grace book by Francine Rivers. Together, I would like us to zero in on a few sections featuring Rivers' perspective of what was happening in Tamar's heart and mind leading up to her decision to dress as a prostitute at the side of the road to wait for Judah to pass. Can you even imagine? Oh my. And then we'll finish our reading with a bit of what comes after that encounter as well. Goodness. Such a heavy story found on the pages of God's Word, but oh so important for us to take a deeper dive into, because despite all the heartbreak and chaos, these two, along with many others, find their way into the lineage of our Savior Jesus. Wow. Just wow.
Let's consider thoughts, feelings, and some of the many emotions of this story as we now read these excerpts from Unveiled. On market day, while her father and brother sat in the city gate visiting with friends, Tamar remained in the goat-haired booth with her mother and sold cloth made from the flax. Sharp-eyed and sharp-tongued patrons never cowled Tamar, and the booth always showed a good profit when she managed it. Her mother was content to leave it in her hands. Though Tamar wore her mourning garments until they were threadbare, she never asked for more. Tamar was satisfied with her voluminous black tapes that covered her from head to toe. The garment didn't chafe, but the barren waistline of her life did. Despair wore upon her resolve. She'd been born for more than this. She'd been brought up and trained to be a wife and a mother of a household. Six years had come and gone, and no summons from Judah. And how her thoughts whirled as she worked. Judah must be unwilling to keep his promise, but she still had rights. According to the customs of her people, if Judah wouldn't allow Shayla to sleep with her and give her a son, then Judah himself owed her one. So Judah was going to the sheep shearing now that his wife was dead. Righteous indignation filled her. Timnah was a center of commerce. She knew that her father-in-law, what he would do there. There were common harlots by the dozens who sold their bodies for a scrap of bread and a cup of wine. Such might be her own fate if her father cast her out. She would no longer sit quietly by, waiting for Judah to honor a promise he'd never intended to keep. Biting her lip, Tamar considered her options. She could continue her chaste existence and wait upon Judah to do what was right, knowing now that he never would. Or she could go after him. She could pretend to be a harlot by the roadside. Later that night, the oil lamp was still burning when Tamar rose. Her mother knew exactly how much oil to use so that the light would last through the heaviest darkness. Soon the lamp would flicker and go out, just in time for the first hint of dawn to light the room. Tamar tiptoed across the room and picked up the basket with the clothing. She left the house with it. She entered the olive grove as she had traveled, hurrying into its depths where she would be hidden. Stripping off her widow's garb, Tamar put on the garments and trappings she brought with her. She loosened her hair, combing her fingers through the thick black curling mass until it hung down her back to below her waist. She put on the veil. Grim but determined, Tamar walked back to the edge and waited. She kept watch for the rest of the morning. Her heart leapt in her throat every time she saw two men coming down the road, but she stayed hidden. She would show herself to no men but Judah and his Aldemite friend. It was well past noon when Judah appeared on the rise with Hira and his side. She stepped out and sat at the edge of the grove. She rose and stepped forward as they came closer. Judah slowed his pace and looked at her. Her palms were slick with sweat, her heart hammering wildly. She wanted to run into the orchard and hide herself again, but she vowed not to lose courage now. She must be bold. Deliberately ignoring the men, she leaned down, lifted the hem of her gown, and adjusted the thin straps of one sandal. The two men stopped. We're in no hurry, the Adulamite said, his tone amused. When she straightened, Tamar didn't look his way. She didn't want him to approach her. She fixed her gaze upon Judah. It was he whose attention she sought. Would he recognize her? Her breath caught tensely as he turned aside and came to her. He stopped right in front of her and smiled, his gaze moving downward. Judah didn't recognize her. He had scarcely looked at her veiled face. Here now, he said, let me sleep with you. Tamar was shocked at how easily he fell prey to a woman's wiles, even a woman who was completely inexperienced in the art of seduction. Was this the way men bought the services of a harlot? What should she say now? She wants you, Judah, Hira grinned. See how she trembles? Perhaps she's shy, Judah smiled. Go on ahead, Hira. I'll catch up later. Hira chuckled. It's been a long time, hasn't it, my friend? He walked down the road, leaving Tamar alone with Judah. She almost lost her nerve because of the intensity of his eyes. He never looked away. So, he said, 
We're alone now. What do you say? She could tell his need was great, but no greater than her anger. Seven years ago, she had begged him not to allow his son Onan to treat her like a harlot. Judah had wanted her to entice his son into doing what was right. Today, she would do so with Judah himself. She took a step away from him, looking back over her shoulder coyly. How much will you pay me, she spoke low, in a tone she hoped would beguile him. I'll send you a young goat for my flock. And where was his flock? Her anger heated. How like Judah to promise something he had no intention of giving. First a son, now a goat. She wouldn't accept another promise from his lips, not on this day or any other. What pledge will you give me so that I can be sure you will send it? She lowered her eyes so that he would not see the fire that raged within her. Had he sensed it in her voice or mistaken the tremor for unbridled passion? Judah stepped closer. Well, what do you want? Tamar considered quickly. She wanted something that bore Judah's name. If she became pregnant, she would need something to prove him responsible. I want your identification seal, your cord, and the walking stick you're carrying. As soon as she uttered the words, her heart stopped. She had asked for too much. No man in his right mind would agree to give up so much, especially to a harlot. Judah would guess now. He would reach out and rip the veils from her face and kill her right there at the crossroads. She jerked slightly as he reached out. Then she realized he was handing her his staff. Tamar took it, then watched in his amazement as Judah removed the cord from around his neck and handed her his seal as well. He hadn't even uttered a word of protest. The man was driven by lust. A bitter sadness gripped Tamar. It took all her willpower not to wail and weep loudly. All the years she had waited for this man to do what was right, and then to find that he thought nothing at all of handing the keys to his household over to a woman he thought was a prostitute. The sadness ebbed quickly, replaced by excitement. She had caused a hope. Though she had shed her pride and degraded herself, she had this one opportunity to provide a child for the household of Judah. She could only hope the time was right. Have you a room in town, Judah said? The day is fair, my lord, and the grass far softer than a bed of stone. Judah's staff in her hand, she walked into the olive grove, and he followed. Judah took his pleasure beneath the shade of an olive tree and fell asleep in the afternoon heat. Tamar rose quietly and left him there. She hurried through the trees, found the basket she'd hidden, and quickly stripped off the garments and put on her own. Looping Judah's cord and seal around her neck, she tucked them beneath her black mourning garment. Hope was alive within her. She pressed her hands over her womb as tears ran down her cheeks. Bowing her head, she whispered softly, I only ask for justice. Judah's sons had abused her and used her. His wife had blamed her for their sins, and Judah had cast her out, broken his promise, and abandoned her. But now she might be grafted into the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Without Judah even knowing he may have given her a child, if his seed had taken, she might yet have her place among the people whom the God of all creation had chose to be his own. And if the child were a son, he would be her deliverer. Tamar reverently touched the seal hidden beneath her garment. She picked up the basket and tucked it under her arm. She took Judah's staff from where it rested against the olive tree and headed home. Continuing on in the excerpt, the news of Tamar's harlotry and her pregnancy rocked Judah and enraged him. Though it had been six years since he'd removed her from his house, he expected her to remain chaste for as long as she lived. If he showed Tamar any mercy and allowed her to live, the child, no matter who the father was, would become part of his household. He couldn't let that happen. He wouldn't. Mingled with his wrath was elation. Tamar had given him an opportunity to get rid of her. She had sinned against his house in the vilest way, and it was his right to judge her. But Shua, his wife, would have been exultant. She had been right after all. Tamar was no good. The girl was evil. She had cost him heir and onan, and the wisest thing he'd ever done was withhold Shelah. 
Let her suffer. Hadn't he suffered enough because of her? Stoning was too swift, too easy. Let her feel the pain of the transgressions against him. Bring her out and burn her. Burn her, I say, Judah shouted. Before Zimron's servant was out the door, Judah felt certain his fortune had changed. By tomorrow the time would be ripe to find a suitable wife for his last son, Shela. It was time now to build up his household. Tamar heard the commotion and knew what Judah had decided. Her mother was wailing and her father shouting. She covered her face and prayed, God of heaven and earth, help me. I know I'm not of your people. I know I'm unworthy. But if you care about Judah, who is your son, save me. Save this child I carry. Her maid, Asha, hurried into the room. Judah said to burn you, O Tamar. Tamar didn't weep or plead. She rose quickly and yanked back the pallet. Removing her shawl, she wrapped Judah's staff in it. She took the cord and seal from around her neck and pressed them into her maid's hand. Take these things to Judah. Go quickly, Asha. Tell him. The man who owns this identification seal and walking stick is the father of my child. Do you recognize him? A commotion had started outside. Her mother was pleading hysterically as her father shouted, I warned her. I told her what would happen if she ever took off her widow's garb. No, you can't. Get out of the way, woman. Tamar brought this upon herself. Tamar pushed her nurse and maid. Go, Aisha. Do not fail me. Run, woman, run. As soon as she obeyed, Tamar positioned herself in the corner of the room where she could best defend herself. Her brothers entered. Will you show no mercy to your own sister? After you've shamed us? They called her names as they grappled with her. She did not make it easy for them. They dragged her away from the wall and dragged her through the doorway. Her father stood outside. Judah said to burn you, and burn you shall. Did they think she would die easily? Did they think she wouldn't fight for the life of her unborn child? Tamar kicked and clawed. She bit and screamed at them. Then let Judah burn me. They struck her, and with all her pent-up fury, Tamar hit back. Let him see his judgment carried out. Take me to Judah. Why should my death be upon your hands and your heads? She used her fingernails and feet. Let him be the one to put the torch to me. Judah saw a woman running toward him, a bundle in her hand. Frowning, he shielded his eyes from the sun's glare and recognized Asha, Tamar's nurse. Gritting his teeth, he swore under his breath. No doubt she had come to plead for mercy for that wretched girl. Gasping for breath and shaking with exhaustion, Asha fell to her knees. She dropped the bundle at his feet. Tamar sent me. Unable to say more, she grabbed the edge of a black shawl and yanked it hard. A staff rolled out. His staff. She held out her hand and opened it, showing him a red cord with a stone seal. Judah snatched it from her. Where did you get these? Tamar. Speak up, woman. Tamar. Take these things to Judah, she said. The man who owns this identification seal and walking stick is the father of my child. Do you recognize him? She bowed her head, fighting for breath. A sick feeling gripped Judah. He went cold as he picked up his staff. The harlot by the roadside had been Tamar. She disguised herself and tricked him into fulfilling her rights to a child. He was awash with shame. Nothing he'd ever done had been unseen. He'd kept nothing secret from the Lord. His skin prickled, his hair raised on end. When will you do what is right, Judah? The words came like a whisper. Tamar had sent these words to him years ago, but it was another voice now soft and terrifying, that spoke into the recesses of his mind and heart. He gripped his head, trembling inwardly. He shook with fear. My lord, Aisha's eyes were wide. His heart pumped frantically. He cried out and ran. He had to stop the judgment he'd set into motion. If he didn't reach Zimran in time, two more lives would be upon his head. Tamar's life and the child she carried. His child. Oh God, forgive me. He pushed himself harder, running faster than he'd ever run in his life. Let the sin be upon my head. Why hadn't he run like this after the Ishmaelites? 
Why hadn't he rescued his brother from their hands? It was too late now to undo what he'd done then. Oh, God, have mercy. God of my father Israel, give me strength. Let her life be spared and the child with her. Zimran and his sons were coming to meet him. They were half dragging Tamar and she was fighting like a madwoman. A brother kicked her as Zimran grabbed her by the hair. Yanking her to her feet, Zimran shoved her toward Judah, cursing her with his every breath. Let her go, Judah shouted. When Zimran hit Tamar again, fire raged Judah's blood. Strike her again and I'll kill you. Zimran was quick to defend himself. You're the one who told us you wanted her burned. And you've every right. She betrayed you and played the harlot. Tamar stood silent now, covered with dust, her face bruised and bleeding. She'd been beaten, dragged, struck, and mocked for his sin. Not even her own father and brothers cared enough to show her the least compassion. She stood and said nothing. Judah's face filled with heat. When had he ever shown this young woman any pity? She'd suffered abuse from Ur, and he'd done nothing to stop it. She asked for her rights from Onan, and he told her to play the harlot. She'd pleaded for justice, and he'd abandoned her. Not once had she cried out before the city gates and embarrassed him. Instead, she'd humbled herself and dressed as a harlot in order to beget a child for his household. And then, rather than expose his sin, she had returned his staff, cord, and seal privately, protecting his reputation. Tears filled his eyes. His throat closed. She stood before him, battered and bleeding, head bowed, not uttering a word of self-defense, waiting, still waiting, as she'd always waited for him to be the man he should be. When will you do what is right, Judah? She is more in the right than I am because I didn't keep my promise to let her marry my son, Shayla. That may be, but she had no right to play the harlot under my roof. Judah looked into the Canaanite's dark eyes and saw a reflection of his own cold heart. Zimran's pride was hurt, and he intended to destroy Tamar for it. Judah's pride broke. Hadn't he blamed Tamar for the sins of others? Without a twinge of conscience, he had rejected and abandoned her. Only a short while ago, he felt exultant at the thought of passing judgment upon her and knowing she'd die an agonizing death by fire. He'd sinned against her a hundred times over and in the full sight of God and never once cared about the cost to her. And now that his sins had caught up with him, he had a choice, go on sinning or repent. Tamar lifted her head and looked at him. He saw something flash in her eyes. She could expose him right now, and she could abhor humiliation upon him unendingly. She could tell how she tricked him at the crossroads and made a laughingstock of him before her father and brothers and everyone else they might tell about it. Judah knew he deserved public ridicule and worse. He saw her anger, her frustration, her grief, and he understood it. But it didn't change his mind. Judah stepped forward and brought his staff up. He held it in both hands, ready to fight. Take your hands off her, Zimron. The child is mine. When he took another step forward, Zimron's face went pale. The Canaanite stepped back, his sons with him. Then take her, do with her whatever you want, Zimron strode away with a bemused glance over his shoulder. His sons followed him. Tamar let out her breath and sank to her knees. Bowing her head, she put her hands on his dirty feet. Forgive me, my lord. Her shoulders shook, and she began to sob. Judah's eyes filled with tears. He went on one knee and put his hand gently on her back. It is I who need your forgiveness, Tamar. The sound of her weeping broke his heart. He helped Tamar to her feet. She was shaking violently. One eye was blackened and swelling. Her lip was bleeding. Her clothes were torn and scratches shone where she had been dragged across rocky ground. All those years when he had first seen her in Zimron's field, he'd sensed something about this girl and wanted her for his household. Tamar was a Canaanite, but she was honorable and loyal. She had great courage and strength. Surely it had been God who led him to choose this girl. She had risked everything to have a child who might preserve his household from ruin. He kept her face. May the God of my father Israel forgive my sins against you. He kissed her forehead. Her body relaxed and mine against you. She smiled and her eyes glistened with tears. 
Judah felt a deep tenderness toward her. He walked beside her until she stumbled, and then swept her up into his arms and carried her the rest of the way home. Aisha came to meet them, ready to tend Tamar's injuries. Judah waited outside his stone house, his head in his hands, pride broken, heart humbled. He prayed as he'd never prayed before, pleading for someone other than himself. It was dusk when Aisha finally came out to him. How is she? Sleeping, my lord, Aisha smiled. All seems well. Tamar hadn't lost his child. Praise be to God. He went out among his flock and selected the best he could find, a flawless male lamb. He confessed his sins before the Lord and spilled the blood of the lamb as atonement. Then he prostrated himself before the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and beseeched him for forgiveness and restoration. That night Judah slept without nightmares for the first time in more years than he could count. Later, after the birth of twin sons Zerah and Perez, Judah entered the room but couldn't speak when he saw Tamar with two babies in her arms. His emotions were so powerful they choked him. Despite his sins, God had given him a double blessing through this courageous young Canaanite woman. He looked at his two sons and their mother, still pale from her travail, and realized he loved Tamar for the woman she was. He not only loved her, he respected and admired her. When Judah had brought her home to Ur, he never realized how God would use her to bring him to repentance, to change his heart, to change the direction of his life. Tamar was a woman of excellence, a woman worthy of praise. She looked at him steadily. I want my sons to be men of God, Judah. I want you to do to them whatever God requires of you so that they will be counted among his people. In eight days I will circumcise my sons, and as soon as you're well enough to travel, we'll leave this place and return to the tents of my father. Judah watched a trickle of tears seep into the dark hair at her temples. Her eyes were filled with uncertainty, and he guessed why. She had never received tender treatment from Bathsheba, his wife, or his sons. My father Jacob will welcome you, Tamar, and my mother will love you. She'll understand you, and what happened between us better than anyone. Tamar was still young, still vulnerable. No woman had ever been more beautiful to him than she was now, precious beyond measure. He would make her way smooth. She raised her eyes. How can you be so sure your mother will accept me? My mother went to my father in veils. Her dark eyes flickered in surprise. Dressed as a harlot? Dressed as a bride, but not the one he wanted. He smiled ruefully. Still, my father came to love her in his own way. She bore him sons. I'm the fourth of six. Judah saw the pulse beat strongly in Tamar's throat. She looked deeply troubled. It was a moment before he realized why, and the heat rushed into his face. He took her hand and covered it with his own. Do not misunderstand me, Tamar, or be afraid of our future together. I will show you the respect of a man should have for a wife, but you are my daughter now. I won't do as the Canaanites do, I promise. He grimaced, his smile tender and apologetic. A promise I mean to keep. Her dark eyes shone. I trust you, Judah. You will do what is right. Bathed in forgiveness, his throat closed. He gently took her hand and kissed her palm. Okay, my OOB tears. Let's end our excerpt with this epilogue from Unveiled, with a bit of a teaser into the story of Judah and Joseph as found in Genesis. In the years ahead, Judah was a different man. He renewed his relationship with his father and reasserted himself as leader over his brothers. He led them to Egypt to buy grain so that Jacob's household could survive the famine that had come upon the land. It was then that God brought him face to face with the brother he had forsaken, Joseph. Unrecognized as a Pharaoh's overseer, Joseph tested them. When he demanded that Rachel's last son, Benjamin, be left as a slave, Judah stepped forward, claimed the disaster upon them was due to their own sins, and offered his life in place of his brother's. Seeing the change in Judah, Joseph wept and revealed his true identity. he long since forgiven them, but now he embraced them. Joseph sent Judah and his brothers back to Canaan with instructions to bring Jacob 
and his entire household back to Egypt, where they would claim the land of the Goshen. Tamar returned with Judah, her sons grown with sons of their own. On his deathbed, Jacob Israel gathered his sons around him and gave them each a blessing. Judah received the greatest one of all. The scepter would never leave his hands. From him and the sons Tamar had borne to him would be the promised one, God's anointed, the Messiah. To his last day upon this earth, Judah kept his promise to Tamar. Though he loved her, he never slept with her again, nor any other woman. Oh, friends, how horrendous that Tamar ultimately had to trick Judah into doing the right thing by her, the right thing of providing an heir to her as the customs of their culture insisted on. What is even more interesting to me is the fact that God not only blessed that interaction with a pregnancy, but that this pregnancy was actually just another part of his ultimate plan of rescue and redemption of all of us through moving the lineage of Jesus forward. In all honesty, this story of Judah and Tamar once again reminds me of the tenderness of our God who sees, just as we saw he did with Leah. God saw Tamar's struggles and continued the promised line of his Messiah through her and Judah. Continuing on, Genesis chapter 39 reads, When Joseph was taken to Egypt by the Ishmaelite traders, he was purchased by Potiphar, an Egyptian officer. Potiphar was captain of the guard for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. The Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. This pleased Potiphar, so he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. From the day Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. All his household affairs ran smoothly and his crops and livestock flourished. So Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. With Joseph there, he didn't worry about a thing, except what kind of food to eat. Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man, and Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. But Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. She kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her, and he kept out of her way as much as possible. One day, however, when no one else was around, and he went on to do his work. She came and grabbed him by his cloak, demanding, Come, sleep with me. Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. When she saw that she was holding his cloak and he had fled, she called out to her servants. Soon all the men came running. Look, she said, my husband brought this Hebrew slave here to make fools of us. He came into my room to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream, he ran outside and got away, but he left his cloak behind with me. She kept the cloak with her until her husband came home. Then she told him her story. That Hebrew slave you brought into this house tried to come in and fool around with me, she said. But when I screamed, he ran outside, leaving his cloak with me. Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph has treated her. So he took Joseph and threw him into the prison where the king's prisoners were held. And there he remained. But the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. The warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. The Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. Wow. Did you notice that phrase repeated over and over and over again in this reading? The Lord was with Joseph, and he succeeded in all that he did. We will continue to find this phrase repeated over and over again in the life of Joseph, in the chapters of his story to come as well. Friends, please be looking for this along with me. As it's important for us to remember, in the good and the hard, God was with him through it all, and he's with us too. 
Listen to this perspective about God being with us in this place, as found in First 5's Genesis study, Blessed Not Bitter. Genesis chapter 39, verse 21 begins, The Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Joseph's life was hard. When he finally reached Egypt, he was sold into slavery. His life there saw many ups and downs, trials, tragedies, and triumphs, but we discover God was with him through it all. Whether he was held in captivity by slave traders, serving as a slave, or in prison, the Bible constantly reminds us that the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph, it reads in verses 2 through 4, so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Our key verse also affirms God's presence when Joseph was thrown into prison after being falsely accused of raping his master's wife. The Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Verse 21. Think of what a bitter person Joseph could have been. He could have claimed his right to charge that he'd been mistreated and abused. He could have let bitterness wrap his heart in a web of anger, anxiety, and revenge. But he didn't. He chose not to. Don't miss this. He made a choice. He made a conscious choice to honor God with his actions and his attitudes, and God honored him. Notice also that God didn't immediately pluck him from either situation, but rather honored him in the midst of hardships. He was eventually delivered from the difficult situations, but not before he honored God right where he was over a period of time. How many times do we ask God to take away an unpleasant circumstance, and he doesn't? How can you make the choice to not let bitterness and anxiety into your heart, but honor God instead? Then remember to also look for the ways he's honoring you, not by removing you, but by sending blessings to you in that place. Recognizing these blessings will be a faith-filled reminders that, like Joseph, God is with you in this place. So as we wrap up our time together, let's hear the She Reads Truth Genesis study devotional titled Joseph in Potiphar's House about God's presence and all the events of Joseph's life. At first glance, Joseph's story reads like a set of extraordinary circumstances lived by an ordinary man. If that's the case, it would be enough to hold our collective attention for a moment, but not one second more. So why is it we are still talking about him? Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob. You may have heard his, of his coat of many colors, or perhaps a time his brothers sold him into slavery. Joseph stood firm against the temptations of Potiphar's wife, even though doing so landed him in prison. He's the one who relocated the baby nation of Israel to Egypt and protected them from eventual famine, as Genesis 47 will read. These are the facts we see on the surface, but look again. There's an undercurrent to Joseph's story that points to a deeper truth. We see it written all over Genesis chapter 39. We read that the Lord was with Joseph, and when his master realized this, he also saw that the Lord had made everything he did successful. Verses 2 and 3. The Lord remained with Joseph and extended kindness to him, blessing the Egyptian's house and making everything he did successful. It's clear that while on a human level, Joseph's life was marked by betrayal, fear, and desperate circumstances. On the supernatural level, his story is about so much more, because of God's favor. When Joseph's brothers plotted his death, God preserved his life. When the schemes of man made Joseph a slave and a refugee, God gave him favor in a foreign land. When he was falsely accused and thrown into jail, God infused Joseph's prison time with purpose. When there was no way for Joseph to free himself from his shackles, God set him free. When Joseph was cut off from his family, God made a way for radical reconciliation. When Joseph lived in a land of famine, God filled his storehouses. Joseph was a nobody, just an overlooked kid with a string of bad luck, nothing to see here but God. 
God was using the circumstances of Joseph's life to tell a bigger, more important story, the story about His glory. God's story of grace is the undercurrent of our lives, too. He proves His own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. He remains faithful to us, even when we are not, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He is rich in mercy, and because of His great love that He had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. We are saved by grace, Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. The reality of God's grace turns every moment of rejection, every false accusation or overlooked achievement, every fear and every famine into an opportunity to showcase His glory. He is the point, not us. Thousands of years later, we are still compelled to remember the story of a shepherd boy turned slave who was transformed from a prisoner to a man of great power, not by Joseph's strength of character or accomplishment, but by God's design and power. Please join me now in prayer. Father God, I don't understand what you are doing in my life right now. It seems to make no sense, but Joseph's story shows me you are sovereign and you have not forgotten me. You have a plan much greater than I can see. For now I see in a mirror dimly, but one day I will see you face to face. Help me trust you in the wait. And Father God, I confess that when I am in unpleasant circumstances, I often let bitterness and worry creep in. Help me to be more like Joseph in the way I respond. Remind me that when you test me, it is for your glory and my good. Help me to remember that your spirit is always with me. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, friends, please don't forget that new episodes come out every other Wednesday, so be sure to subscribe so you never miss one. By subscribing, I will just show up in your podcast app every other Wednesday ready to study with you. And if you have liked this episode, could you share it with a friend, rate, review, you know, do all the things people like to do with a podcast. I sure do want to thank you in advance because those are the absolute best ways to help others find out about this show, and they also mean so very much to me. Thank you again, my OB tears. And then please be sure to check out the resources I feature each episode in the show notes. I share them because I believe they are very valuable to take your study times even further. I so hope you aren't missing out on these resources to dig deeper after our study time together. Show notes can be found on the show notes pages of the mfaring.com website. This is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends.